Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 10. Keltham goes to the improvised whiteboard and starts drawing squares and triangles, red and green, large and small, inside some bigger blue circles. Consider each of these blue circles and their contents as depicting, we would say in baseline, possible worlds. By possible, I don't mean it's especially likely that you'll find yourselves in them. These possible worlds I'm depicting are much too tiny to support intelligent life. They've only got a few squares and triangles inside. By possible, I do mean that one could make a fully detailed illusion of the world, given the ability to cast arbitrarily large illusions. My using markers to draw a world in complete detail similarly shows that world to be possible. Now consider these propositions. Keltham writes in black marker, Z. All triangular things are red. H. All red things are large. Q. All triangular things are large. Dathilan has some different conventions for symbols to use in equations. For example, all the symbols should be as topologically and typographically distinct as possible. As you can see, I have shown worlds where Z is true, and worlds where Z is false. I have shown worlds where H is true, and worlds where H is false. I have shown worlds where Q is true, and worlds where Q is false. None of Z, H, and Q, then, are necessary truths, nor necessary falsehoods, for they are all true in some illusionable worlds and false in others. Then is there anything useful here for math, logic, and necessity to say? It takes a couple of minutes of muttering and frowning and guessing, no, and there are triangular things in all the world, oh, no, not that one, before. Well, if Z and H are true, then Q is. You can't have any with Z and H but not Q. That took them longer than Keltham expected. He frankly would not have expected that all the exercises he had to do as a kid were, like, required for getting that point instantaneously as an adult. Not to mention they know topology, but not predicate logic. Right, because you need topology for spells, but not, apparently, predicate logic. If he'd realized he sure would have told them to learn that in yesterday evening's after-hours instead of calculus. Oh well, he'll plunge on and see how far he gets. Keltham goes to the whiteboard and draws some conscious observers inside his blue circle worlds. Much as some other world might indicate observers with smiley faces, Dathalani Convention calls for Keltham to draw a number of glaring eyes inside his worlds, creating a tableau that somebody from a differently troped world might regard as eldritch. Well, now I've put some conscious observers inside these worlds. Not that my tiny drawings embody real experiences, of course. They're not detailed enough drawings for that. So now these pictures are no longer being drawn in full detail, which is something we might need to watch out for if this was a more complicated debate about conscious experiences. Some of these observers, in the worlds where Z is actually true, might see twenty triangles being red and zero triangles being green, and hypothesize a general law. All triangles are red. They might be able to deduce, without having to actually scry into other planes, that Z was not a necessary truth, they might be able to cast illusions, draw on walls, or just use their imaginations to see that. So they would not be certain that all triangles are red. For all they know, the world might up and present them one day with a green triangle. But the next time they saw a triangle, even if their world made them slower to see colors than shapes, they could guess even in advance of observing. They would guess the triangle was red. Let's also suppose that you can tell whether an object is small or large, but it's an expensive measurement. 
an observer has to actually wander over close to the object to determine its size, because if they're looking at the object from a distance, they're not sure if it's nearby and small or large and far away. These observers have only one eye, as you can see, no binocular vision for tracking distances. Let's say they have to pay one labor, one silver piece each time they want to move to an object. In worlds where H is true, observers who pay to measure a few red things will find that of all the red things they have measured, every one of those red things was large. Now let me ask again, in case anyone has seen the point before I speak it. How can knowing necessary truth save you money? Well, if you know that triangles are red, and that red things are large, then you don't have to go check the size of triangles. To state it precisely, some observers may have guessed the unnecessary truth that all triangles are red, observing the redness after the delay. They may have separately guessed the unnecessary truth that all red things are large after paying to measure some red things. Maybe they've never measured any of the red things that were triangles, we can suppose for the sake of clarity. Then the necessary truth, Q is true in all worlds where Z and H is true, can allow them to guess the unnecessary truth all triangles are large, which necessarily follows from other unnecessary truths they've guessed. And even if they've never measured the size of a single triangle before, they can guess, though not know for certain, that every triangle they've seen was large, and that the next triangle they see will be large. If it's the kind of knowledge that matters, but not enough that you need to be very sure of it, they could use that guess in place of paying a silver piece to measure it. Of course, it isn't a necessary truth that the observers are capable of figuring this all out, that they can operate the necessity, Z and H yield Q. We could draw an illusion of a world where the observers totally fail to figure that out. It would still be true across all planes and all illusions that could ever be drawn in full detail, but the people in that illusion wouldn't know it. It isn't necessary that entities successfully operate universal necessities in order to see which new guesses must follow from old guesses, which means that some entities do better or worse at this than others. This is true when considering all possible worlds as a whole, and also happens to be true within my homeworld, and almost certainly in this one. So now we shall turn to the question. Suppose you were constructing a new entity from scratch. How would you go about embedding in them an internal reflection of the interuniversal law, the ability to operate necessary truths correctly? No, sorry, that's probably too much of a leap to ask in one go. Strike that. Restart. Suppose you were comparing two entities. How would you say that one was doing better or worse than the other at being lawful in this exact sense? Keltham hasn't noticed, but his teaching style clearly has half the class extremely panicked. They are concealing it very well. It really seems bizarre that you could teach law this way, with trick questions and guessing games and strange rules about how you're supposed to volunteer wrong answers if you aren't sure you know the right one. It seems like the habits of mind that would teach are... Well, does she actually think that it'd teach unlawful habits of mind or just horrendously ill-advised ones? There is a difference. If you built a military out of Kelthams, it would not be a very good military, which is a perfectly serviceable definition of law. The discipline and coordination required to win wars. The Kelthams, and plausibly the people taught like Keltham, would be wrong, a lot, out loud and cheerfully, they'd consider everything their business. They'd ask questions they shouldn't ask. He did behave differently with Contessa Laratha. Maybe there's a kind of distinction the mind can successfully maintain, irreverent in most contexts, but deferential where it actually matters, 
but it seems like it would be hard to tell if someone will be deferential when it actually matters, if they've spent their entire life in contexts where it doesn't, not being sufficiently deferential at all. You could look at how good they were at making those guesses, how often when they guessed they were right, how often they missed a pattern. Measuring how good people are at guessing final conclusions in reality, whether, when they say, I assign 90% probability this triangle is large, the triangle is actually large 9 times out of 10, sure is a metric of how much law people contain and are using correctly. But there's more than one kind of law you need to build an agent, and the piece of law we're trying to isolate is the one that's about using necessary truths correctly. One way of looking at that part is that it's about which conclusions follow from which premises. To demonstrate, Keltham has seen one or two fragments of algebra in his reading, enough that he has some idea of what Chellish algebra conventions look like, though it's a bit weird that they teach algebra without, like, teaching people what algebra means. Hopefully it's not a piece of knowledge that's info-hazardous here, but not in Dathalon. He sketches a series of equations. Equation 1, x equals 1. This is our premise. Equation 2, y equals 1. This is also a premise. Equation 3, 1 equals 1. This is derived from the identity of 1. Equation 4, x equals y. This is obtained by substituting x from equation 1 and y from equation 2. Equation 5, x times x equals y times x. This is obtained by multiplying equation 4 by x. Equation 6, x times x minus y times y equals y times x minus y times y. This is obtained by subtracting y times y from both sides of equation 5. Equation 7, the quantity x plus y times the quantity x minus y equals y times the quantity x minus y. This is derived using the difference of squares on the left-hand side and factoring on the right-hand side. Equation 8, x plus y equals y. This is derived by canceling the factor of x minus y. And finally, equation 9, 2 equals 1. This is the unexpected conclusion from equation 8. Otomans is now in emergency panic overdrive which you would be able to distinguish from her usual state of being if you looked carefully. This particular proof of an inconsistency in first-order arithmetic is safely flawed, but if the foreign mortal is plotting to produce a valid proof of inconsistency, why won't they move the mortal somewhere prophecy still works? She can't trust Abadar anymore, fellow lawful neutral god or not. Abadar might not be useful in this emergency, even if she could trust him, he's scarcely better at decoding mortal minds than herself. Otolman sends a message reading simply, Help, tagged with a location. Now I'm not so much asking, what is the flaw in this proof? Keltham is saying, now that he's given the classroom the few required seconds to look over his derivations, as asking, how would you go about finding the flaw if you couldn't spot it at a glance or on your first try at looking? Irori becomes stronger, Yahweh. Irori has never once received an emergency summons from Atolmans that was actually important. He nonetheless maintains a habit of responding with alacrity, just in case. The concept of anthropic selection is not lost on him, and zero urgent summonses from Atolmans is not quite as reassuring as a mortal might think. Yes? You used to be a mortal. I request you to read this mortal's mind and inform me whether it is plotting to write down a series of valid proof steps, proving an inconsistency in first-order arithmetic. Ottomans isn't sure, 
for obvious reasons of resulting inconsistency, but she suspects that she internally uses ordinal induction up to epsilon zero. They'd have to boot up Metatolmins to fix her. Ex-mortal or not, from where Irori truly stands far above Galarian and other places, it isn't easy for him to look inside the mind of a mortal not pledged to himself and praying. Otolmans only needs to pay attention to relatively few things going on inside the multiverse. And then she is a relatively materially focused entity on top of that, designed to be able to check all the electrons in a room to make sure none of them have the wrong mass. Irori, if he hasn't formed an avatar and sent it into the room, cannot read the writing on the whiteboard the way Otolmans can. He can barely tell that these souls are in a library surrounded by books. He definitely can't hear the sounds, the pressure patterns transmitted through the air as vibrations. Still, it is Otolmans who calls, and the mortal is more lawful neutral than usual even for those that register lawful neutral. From the mortal's general spiritual posture, Irori can already guess what he'll see. But just in case, Irori expends the energy to take a very brief look at the surface of the mortal's mind. It's not as difficult as it would be at other times of this mortal's life, given his current endeavours. He's not planning to destroy mathematics, he only intends to teach of his way to others. Irori shifts most of his delegated attention back to other aspects of his businesses, leaving only a tiny fragment to look at the Chelish place a bit longer. Wait, what? Irori shifts somewhat more of his attention back to that location. Carissa feels that she could grasp what Keltham is pointing at a lot faster if she were reading his mind, but that's disallowed. Now he's a fourth-circle caster and reasonably likely to notice. She can't even ask him whether it'd be all right if she read his mind because they haven't acknowledged mind reading to be a thing that magic can do. It remains bizarre to think that law has anything to do with formal mathematical logic. You don't need to understand the gods to be lawful, you just need to obey them. But, but Keltham's world is more lawful than hers, and... So there's nothing heretical about the claim that humans are using a mediocre approximation of law, which is a god concept that doesn't mean quite what humans understand it to mean. And there's nothing heretical about the idea that humans ought to use the real thing, except that they're too stupid and limited to understand it, so they have to settle for their wrong approximations. And there's nothing very heretical about the claim that, actually, there's a way to teach humans the real thing, despite their stupidity and limitations, at least to teach smart humans, to teach humans in Keltham's world with a median INT of 16 or 17, and the people in this room have a median INT of 16 or 17, so the people in this room can learn it. And the true structure of law would be mathematical, because it's about... Regularities, consistencies, treaties among the gods aren't promises so much as fundamental changes, becoming the kind of structure of which the promise is true, and there is, actually, an obvious parallel to math there even if she can't properly articulate it. The way the gods are is inevitable. In many ways they vary much less than humans, because there is only one way to be right and many, many ways to be wrong— and the gods wouldn't be very suited to figure out what math, specifically, to teach to humans, especially if it requires obnoxiously counterintuitive tactics like making everyone limp their way through the lesson guessing. And perhaps, too, this wouldn't even have been worth trying anywhere in the world until quite recently, 
You need a bunch of smart people in a room, and Cheliacs is the first society in recorded history to look for all their smart children and teach them math. Well, you'd know there has to be an error somewhere, since you got it wrong. You could check each line and see where the error showed up first. Check each line to see where the error showed up first. How would you check a line for error? Well, there's obviously a problem in the eighth line, where if you substitute in 1 for x and y, you've got the error already. And there's not a problem in the seventh line, because that one comes out to 2 times 0 equals 1 times 0, which is true. Keltham takes a quick look at the name tag of whoever that was, why the Chellians collectively aced this problem, but not the predicate logic one. Presumably it's just down to more actual practice with algebra. Precisely, if we substitute in 1 for x and y, and evaluate the left-hand sides and right-hand sides of each equation, we get the following assertions. Assertion 1, 1 equals 1, therefore x equals 1. This is our premise. Assertion 2, 1 equals 1, therefore y equals 1. This is also a premise. Assertion 3, 1 equals 1, therefore 1 equals 1. This is derived from the identity of 1. Assertion 4, 1 equals 1, therefore x equals y. This is obtained by substituting x from assertion 1 and y from assertion 2. Assertion 5, 1 equals 1, therefore x times x equals i times x. This is obtained by multiplying assertion 4 by x. Assertion 6, 0 equals 0. Therefore, x times x minus y times y equals y times x minus y times y. This is obtained by subtracting y times y from both sides of assertion 5. Assertion 7, 0 equals 0. Therefore, the quantity x plus y times the quantity x minus y equals y times the quantity x minus y. This is derived using the difference of squares on the left-hand side and factoring on the right-hand side. Assertion 8, 2 equals 1, therefore, x plus y equals y. This is derived by canceling the factor of x minus y. And finally, assertion 9, 2 equals 1, therefore 2 equals 1. This is the unexpected conclusion from assertion 8. The tactics of algebra, like being allowed to add 3 to both sides of an equation, are meant to preserve truth, not create it from scratch. If an equation starts out true, a tactic in algebra should not produce a false equation from that true equation. This way of thinking holds even if the elements of the equation refer to things in the outside world. Let x be the number of people sitting in the brown chair, 2 as it happens, and let y be the number of people sitting in the red chair, currently 3. It is then an unnecessary truth, not a necessary truth, that x plus 1 equals y, as I have defined those terms to refer to the outside world. In our world, x plus 1 equals y evaluates to 3 equals sign 3, which happens to be true. But if you cast an illusion showing two people sitting in the brown chair and two people sitting in the red chair, the equation in that world would evaluate to 3 equal. Sign 2, which is false. And if I said x plus 10 equals y, that would be an unnecessary falsehood. In our world, it evaluates to the false statement 12 equals sign 3. Now apply the rules of algebra, add 2 to both sides, and transform the first equation x plus 1 equals y to the new equation x plus 3 equals y plus 2. In our world, this evaluates to 5 equals sine 5, which is again true. If we apply the same tactic to x plus 10 equals y, it yields x plus 12 equals y plus 2, which evaluates to 14 equals sine 5, again false. We term a step of inference valid when it is truth-preserving, when it transforms true statements into only other true statements. It doesn't have to preserve falsehood. Multiplying both sides of an equation by zero will produce truth 
even where it didn't previously exist. What makes the tactic of adding two to both sides of an equation, allowed in math, is not that some watcher or representative from governance told you it was allowed. This part got hammered into Keltham and his agemates a lot as a kid, so it was probably determined to be important in practice to emphasize. What makes it an allowed step is that, if you have two weights balanced on either side of a scales, and you add two identical rocks to both the left side and the right side, the scales will still balance after that. If you look back at the original flawed proof that 2 equals sine 1, it goes from a true statement in step 7 to a false statement in step 8. Then between 7 and 8, we must have applied some operation of inference which is not valid, which has the ability to take in a true statement and spit out a false statement. This tactic was canceling the multiplication by x, y from both sides, which is to say dividing both sides by x, y. Dividing both sides of an equation by 2 is valid. If you have a scales in balance and remove half the weight from each sides of a scale, it will still be in balance. Here, we see that division by 0 is not valid, because it can produce falsehood from truth. What makes division by 0 unlawful is not that your watcher told you not to do it while doing algebra. It is that division by 0 is not generally truth-preserving. We can find some equations that will still be true after dividing both sides by a term equal to 0, but it is not a safe step in general. Sorry if that part about watchers seems overly obvious, by the way. It's just that apparently human brains by default try to reuse the part of ourselves that learns from adults not to steal cookies outside of mealtimes, or will get slapped on the wrist in order to relate to the rules for manipulating necessary truths that existed outside the start of time. And these are actually quite different topics, like rules change sometimes, when legislators vote on them, but algebra doesn't. So you want to be explicitly aware of the difference and not go bugging adults to let you divide by zero just this once. So the argument is that part of law is the habits of mind so you only reason in truth-preserving ways? Meritzel, who was also fastest on the algebra, says, I am still not entirely sure what the word lawful means to y'all. Multiple different words in my native language all come out as lawful in Taldane, and I'm mostly running with those. Chiliax is supposedly a lawful country but the books are written with what look to me like appalling jumps of reasoning, and somebody seems to have taught y'all algebra without teaching you what math is or why it works. But Lurilatha, whose job title I already forgot, is supposed to be more innately lawful, and she did not talk with those appalling jumps in her reasoning, which suggests to me that the word lawful is translating to me mostly correctly, or that the concept I hear is at least a real part of what lawfulness is and the humans here simply are not being taught about that part of lawfulness, or how to flow along with it on purpose instead of by accident. That said, not being taught something is not the same as having none of it inside you. Your eyes can see without you being taught how the part of the mind that handles vision is doing the work it does, and if you could never see the implications of other guesses you'd already made, you wouldn't get far enough in life to reproduce. Everyone here has bits and pieces of them that imperfectly echo the shard of law, about which conclusions follow from which premises. I also happen to have studied that law explicitly and went through standard training for not being quite as messy about it. That's part of the process that Dathelon went through to put together aeroplanes that could fly across oceans. We aren't perfect at it, to be clear, just better than whoever wrote the so-called books in this library. I really want to see what happens if we match up Lurilatha against a keeper, one of the people from my world who are actually specialized in being more perfect reflections of law, but I doubt we'll ever get a chance to try. You think that in a lawful country all the books should only use truth-preserving arguments? Someone says, somewhat dumbfounded. It makes sense, though. 
Mortals didn't have free will. Now they do, and it displeases Asmodeus, but no one has a complete account of what free will is, because they're not gods, and don't understand what exactly displeases Asmodeus. But that might just be it. Gods, innately, reason in truth-preserving ways. Of course they would. Lying to yourself for self-preservation is a thing you only have to do if you have wrong beliefs and can't argue yourself out of them because you don't know the counter-arguments, and so you have to stop thinking about them. That is not a problem gods have. Gods just reason correctly. And in Keltham's world, there's still the concept of infohazards, things you're not supposed to learn, presumably because you're only human and can't properly have the kind of mind that entertains that fact, in a way that allows for continued useful functioning. Something about that frame isn't quite right, but despite that she feels like everything is coming together. Minds should reason in truth-preserving ways. Someone, a long time ago, robbed humans of that, and Asmodeus is angry. Carissa is angry. That was her birthright, and she wants it back. And Asmodeus thought, until Keltham arrived, that the scars they'd wrought on human souls could only be corrected in hell, or at least could most cheaply for Asmodeus be corrected in hell. But in Keltham's world, where humans do not magically reason in truth-preserving ways, they figured out, possibly over many thousands of years of careful experiments, how to teach it. And Asmodeus saw that and immediately told them not to hurt Keltham. Because, okay, that line of thought she's going to tuck away for later, it seems maybe ill-advised. Sufficient that Keltham got Asmodeus's endorsement immediately. Minds should reason in truth-preserving ways. The books ought to have good arguments. Devils are masters of propaganda but aren't convinced by it. Carissa doesn't think of herself as convinced by it. The books are really presenting their conclusions, not their arguments, but... But that's because the books think humans aren't doing reasoning well enough to be persuaded by argument, and humans can learn that, at least smart ones. And if they knew it, then you could just argue everyone out of all the heresies. Their minds wouldn't possess the weaknesses that make that strategy doomed, that make it necessary to present them with conclusions they won't be able to understand. Or at least, less of it. Keltham did have the concept of things he was not meant to learn. More things that suddenly make sense. What the Starstone does to you, why it changes some people more than others. Godhood, even more than devilhood, would preserve you to the extent that you are worth preserving, to the extent that you have learned the processes of reasoning. Irori ascended just by becoming perfect, and everyone writes that off as a strange one-off that only Irori could do, but in Dath Ilan they teach it. It has to be done all at once, she realizes. There's a terrible middle ground where you are trying to reason things out, but you are incompetent to do it, and so you run right into all the heresies that you could have been protected from by not trying to reason. You would absolutely fail a loyalty check in the middle of trying to learn how to think. But at the end of it, Asmodeus arrived at his beliefs through reason, and he hates it, that humans were changed so they can't, and he wants them changed back. She rereads everything on the board, though there's not much written on the board. The new thing she's learned here isn't that there are necessary truths and empirical truths, or that you shouldn't divide by zero, it's that it is possible for humans to learn how to reason well enough. They're better off trying it. 
if you found yourself in an unfamiliar country and you opened up a book and it was like, the sky is green, how do we know this? Because teddy bears are cute. My dad once bought me a cookie. Would you suspect you were in a chaotic country or a lawful one? Now I admit this example is unrealistic. Generalizing from my reading experiences, a Chellish author would never explicitly ask, how do we know this? And yes, I'm sure places outside of Chiliacs are even sillier. But your book authors are still all very silly, and if Lurilatha had infinite free time, I would lock all of them in a room with her until they learned better. That's kind of what hell is, someone offers. The other people who were totally thinking that, but not sure if they were allowed to say it, giggle. The world wound isn't in hell. It's here. And I don't know why you can't have people train in lawfulness in the whole post-life thing for a few years, and then resurrect them here, if that's a thing in the first place. Or why Lurilatha hasn't been able to train teachers who could train teachers who could train you. But the world wound isn't in hell. It's here. And it's this world that needs to become saner and wealthier and better at repelling demons or die. Those questions don't sound like they're meant to answer them. Instead, they nod vigorously. No, actually. She thinks they're meant to answer that. Or she thinks they ought to, regardless of whether they're meant to. Becoming a devil in hell takes centuries, she says. You can't be resurrected after that long. It's been widely assumed there just wasn't any way to make a useful amount of progress on being lawful the way devils are in a human lifetime, or in time to close the world wound. But it seems to me that the reason Asmodeus intervened directly to tell us to make this a priority is that the way you know is a lot faster. Asmodeus would also bet significant resources on that, even if he only estimated a small probability of it working, so let's not get overconfident. But yeah, I don't know how long Dathilan took to get where we did, starting from scratch and baseline. We had to screen off our history, for reasons that are apparently also info-hazardous to know about, but the pieces all fit together, and you should be able to complete the whole thing once you have enough hints from me. Even if there's no spell to give me perfect recollection of all the training I went through, I'm hoping it should be possible to get, like, 80% of the benefit from going off my memory of, hopefully, the most critical parts. Not to mention, you're not all eight years old, and that should count for something when it comes to learning this part a little faster. Keltham turns back toward the whiteboard, completely unconscious of any effect the declaration about eight-year-olds might have had on the rest of his audience, who are all concealing their reactions anyways. If you wish to support the production of this AI-voiced reading of Plane Crash, please visit patreon.com slash askwhocastsai. Any help is appreciated.